Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Today we've got some exciting information to share with you. We're going to be talking about mental health and physical health, but first I want to mention November is Epilepsy Awareness Month. And if you don't know what epilepsy is, or you know, or someone you love has epilepsy, where can you find resources here in the islands to help you handle the situation with this diagnosis? And where is your community? Well, today we have some folks here to answer that question. We have Kathleen Stefosik. Did I did I do well with that? That is correct. Good enough. Okay. From the Epilepsy Foundation of Hawaii and Natalie Morgan Romaine from Queen's Epilepsy Center. And we're going to be talking a little bit for the first portion of our show about what is epilepsy and why would you want to find your community and hear about what they're doing to treat their condition and how their families and loved ones are handling it. So first, I'm going to put Nat, Natalie and uh, Kathleen, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you. Thank you. And I want to put you in the hot seat, Natalie, because <laughs> you're right there. What's epilepsy? If somebody has a seizure, is that do they have epilepsy and what's the difference? No. Epilepsy is a, a neurologic condition really with the risk of recurrence of another seizure. So you may have one seizure with a high enough risk of another seizure, and then at that point you have epilepsy. So if you have two seizures, do you have epilepsy? If you have two unprovoked seizures, meaning there's not a cause that can be removed, say you had a stroke or a traumatic brain injury in the past, and you've had two recurrent seizures, then yes, you have a diagnosis of epilepsy. So who's getting epilepsy? Are kids born with it? They can be. Epilepsy can start at any age. It's higher incidence in the very young and the very old, but it can start at any age. And so when people are diagnosed with epilepsy, is it something you can just control by taking medication? Do you have to monitor diet? Do you have to monitor activity? All of the yeah. above? Yeah, all of the above. So for some, there's a huge broad range in an epilepsy diagnosis. For some, they have their second seizure, they're started on a medication, which is generally the treatment for 90% of those with epilepsy, and they never have another seizure again, or they have very rare seizures. And that's the best case scenario. For many, and roughly about a third of the population with epilepsy, that doesn't work well enough. They've tried and failed a few different medications, and then now we need to start thinking about what other treatments we can offer them. All right. Well, let's talk about what's going on right here locally. The Epilepsy Foundation of Hawaii, Kathleen Stefosik, you're here to represent them. And tell me, what does the Epilepsy Foundation of Hawaii do? Great question. So the Epilepsy Foundation of Hawaii, we're here to provide support, education, and advocacy for individuals in Hawaii living with epilepsy and for their family members as well. And so, you know, to understand the scope of epilepsy, one in 26 individuals in the United States will develop epilepsy at some point in their life. So it does affect a large portion. About 15,000 people here in Hawaii have epilepsy. And so during the month of November, November is Epilepsy Awareness Month, and we want to bring um, awareness around to epilepsy and understand that you know, it's not contagious. You're not going to get it from somebody. Um, we want everybody to kind of just understand that what it is and know that there are organizations like the Epilepsy Foundation of Hawaii here to support them. And part of that support is helping to put on a conference that's coming up this weekend. Yes. 
So, Natalie, tell me a little bit about the conference. It's occurring through a combination of efforts from Queen's Epilepsy Center and the Epilepsy Foundation. Who is the conference geared for? So the conference is geared for anybody that wants to learn more about epilepsy and the important topics that you need to know when you're living with epilepsy. And I think the main theme that I want this conference to serve is to empower people that live with epilepsy and connect them with others that that have struggled through the same experiences. Oftentimes with epilepsy, people hide um, and feel like they're alone. And this is a great avenue for people to come learn more and, and get connection with others. Well, and how often, and I'm sure, Kathleen, you hear it as well, that you've learned some of the best suggestions not from your doctor, but from other people, family members, Mm -hmm. or other folks who know somebody who has the same condition who says, you know what we did to try and help out when Johnny was Mm -hmm. diagnosed with epilepsy? This is what our family did. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's where you get the best suggestions. Yeah, and that's why the Epilepsy Foundation of Hawaii is here to provide that support and provide that not medical support. uh, assistance, but we're there to provide um, the support. Like one of our activities that we have is called Talk Story, where you know individuals living with epilepsy, and we're also reaching out to moms and parents of children who have epilepsy who want to talk to other moms and other parents who are going through similar situations. Um, so we provide that um, in a co- comfortable environment for them, so that they can have that uh, support network around them. And the conference this Saturday is another great way to meet more individuals who are um, living with epilepsy or caregivers of those that are um, uh, have epilepsy. So it's sort of bringing together the people who may have the condition, but also developing not just a support group, but sort of a support community exactly. around them. So the conference is coming this weekend. Yeah, it's this Saturday, November 14th. We're going to hold it from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., and it's located in the Queens Conference Center that's right on the campus of the Queens Medical Center. And it's a pretty popular event. It is. This is our third year of holding this conference, um, and we generally have about 100 attendees. We're hoping for a little bit more this year. It's expanded every year. It's expanded every year, and we're also including uh, continuing education for nurses and social workers. So there's another opportunity if you're a clinician of some type and you're a nurse or a social worker and you need those education credits, then this is another opportunity to get those. Are there any particular topics that you think are really super important for people to hear about? Not that everything isn't important, but I'm sure that there are some themes that the last three years you've heard about that kind of struck you as really important to bring about again. I think that the topic that I'm most excited about sharing with the audience and learning about myself is ways to build a support network. I often hear from people that live with epilepsy that they don't know how to talk about epilepsy. They don't know how to engage with other people related to self-esteem or fear or what if they're judged. And we have two psychologists that are going to come and talk about what a social support network really means and how they build upon that. Really excited about that. Because it really is more than just the physical health. It's more than the physical And we're going to talk some more about that. It is the emotional and mental health that really, that combination is what helps a person to really deal with any illness. Absolutely. And without that combination, we're just, we're not treating the whole person. Yeah, your doctors can prescribe medications. They can, they can talk about what treatments they can offer you. But oftentimes, we don't 
fulfill the need of all of the emotional support that people live with and deal with in epilepsy. Uh, Agreed. Echo that wholeheartedly. Now, if people are interested, how can they find out more? So they can find out um, more information at our website, um, the epilepsyhawaii.org website. Um, And you can go on there and we have a living well with epilepsy. Just click on it and you can register for the conference. It's free to attend the conference. So please go ahead and register. Um, And, you know, as as Natalie was talking about the um, support and emotional support network at the Epilepsy Foundation of Hawaii, we provide um, educational services to the community. So individuals not only... Um, many times we get calls from parents who find out that their child has epilepsy and they don't, the school doesn't know how to handle that or the teachers don't know what to do when they're, when the student has a seizure in class. And so at the Epilepsy Foundation, we do provide educational um, trainings and presentations to schools um, and organizations that would need to have seizure first aid information as well. So that's part of building your support network as well. And that's why we're here to help. A whole community. It does take a village. (laughs) And so they can go online. Mm -hmm. And Natalie, tell me, for those who don't like the computer, they like phones. Is there a phone number? There is. Contact the Epilepsy Foundation directly at 528-3058. We can help get you set up. Fantastic. So if you happen to have someone in your family, you yourself or someone you love who suffers from epilepsy, there is help out there. There is a goal of establishing this community support network that includes you. And if you want to hear more about it, there's lots of opportunities for you. There's an event this weekend. There's also the Epilepsy Foundation of Hawaii. Don't forget, November is Epilepsy Awareness Month. So thanks to both of you for really bringing on and talking about this extremely important topic with all of our listeners. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so much. All right, this is a yearly event. We're going to have to have you on again next year. Now, you were talking about how important it is to have that emotional wellness and that whole mental health aspect. And the psychologists are going to talk about some of these situations during the conference. Mental health, it really is just as important as our physical health. Some may even think and argue even more so. And yet, As we look around in society today, there are so many ways in which we are all affected by each other's emotional state of well-being. Anybody stuck in traffic right now can attest to the effects of frustration, stress, and in some cases even anger at random strangers as we're trying to rush home after a long day at work on a Monday. Not only can that affect our behavior with one another, it can also directly affect our health. Hypertension, higher cholesterol, higher blood sugars, lowered immune system responses. These have all been directly linked to high levels of stress that the body is under. And nowhere is that even more important than in the mental health of our most, one of our more vulnerable populations. The homeless, those in jail, those marginalized in society, they're all around us. And their mental health and subsequent behaviors can directly affect our own. Dr. Renault Kennedy is a nationally recognized expert in this area. And she's here in the studio to share more about how dealing with the mental health of those folks starts really with addressing our own mental health as well. Dr. Kennedy, welcome to the show. It's a delight to be here. And thank you for letting me have the opportunity to talk about this really important topic. It really is. I think a lot of times... We assume that if someone is mentally ill, they will be taken care of in some sort of a group home or in some sort of a different way away from the rest of us. And we don't think their behavior affects us. But, boy, it really does. It affects every single one of us. 
You're absolutely right. And if we were just to walk down the street today, we will see a number of individuals who suffer from mental illness, and they are in positions where either they don't recognize that they have the illness, or they have been so discouraged by the services that they have been provided that they lose their linkages, and they lose their home. And like you just mentioned a minute ago, if you don't have a village to help take care of these individuals, they may never find their way. So it's Monday. Monday. It's been a very difficult Monday for many folks. What are we doing right? Is there anything that we're doing right in the field of mental health? Are we putting more of a focus on it? Are we acknowledging this more? Is there anything we're doing correctly to handle this problem? Well, I think we have to look at the awareness that our culture itself has. And as Americans, I I see that above many different cultures, we are aware of the mental condition and how it affects our lives. We talk about our emotions all of the time, and we talk about how those emotions really um, make a definition about how we live and about our happiness. So when we talk about mental illness and mental health, it's as if it's a part of our, of our, of our, our nomenclature. So we're good at talking about it. Yes. Okay. It sounds like what we're not so good at is taking action regarding that. You know, a lot of times I'll see folks in my office, and I have a, a fairly fairly standard internal medicine practice, and they'll come in because they're sick. And when you say to folks, uh, particularly younger folks or even folks when they're older, why don't you come in when you're healthy? Let's talk about some standard things. Check your cholesterol. Let's check your sugar. Even if everything's going well, let's check in together once every year or so. I often hit a level of resistance, like, I only need to come see you when I'm sick. I can only imagine that that sense is even greater in your profession. I think it's much more difficult for a person to acknowledge that they have something going on in their emotions and in their thinking, and to be able to present to a mental health professional, whether it's a physician, a psychologist, or social worker, and to say, I'm not mentally well, is really a challenge. It's much easier to be able to talk about a physical illness, but mental illness has got a stigma to it, and um, people tend to be embarrassed by it. They tend to deny it. And when we are around individuals who are mentally ill, oftentimes they feel unpredictable to us, so we shy away from them. Absolutely. That that I don't know what they're going to do. I don't want to hang around them. That's definitely part of it. Mm-hmm. I think the other aspect of this that I think we often don't acknowledge is the fact that our physical sense of well-being is so directly linked to our emotional sense of well-being. Mm-hmm. And if... If we don't recognize that connection, and I mentioned earlier, you know, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, you know, high, high blood, even, even related to high blood sugar, these things we've linked. We know that if you have certain stress hormones running through your body, that it's going to increase the numbers of various things, make your pulse faster, make your blood pressure go higher, make your sugar go higher, various different elements and, and effects. And yet it's kind of ironic because we'll often give people medication to treat their blood pressure, but the fact that they're super stressed all the time, their job is not a good fit, or they're, they're in some way just not doing well mentally is not the first thing that we think of to address, when in fact it may be the only thing to help them to get better. 
Well, it's very important for people to recognize and all of us to know that we have happy days and we have sad days. And when those sad days get prolonged, that the human mechanism in itself can change and that the sadness that we may have or the stress that we may have may turn itself into a type of disorder, if we will, or disease that we have that can create a form of illness that needs recognition, it needs amelioration, and sometimes it needs medication. Right. I really think that it's a lot of times we're taught it's either or, and I think we have to change our vocabulary, and we need to put the word and in there. It's not... Either mm-hmm. you go ahead and take pills for it or you go into therapy. It's what if we do both? What if we talk about some of the issues that could be affecting one another and then also use medications appropriately when you need to? You know, nobody's suggesting if you have appendicitis that you should ignore it and you should never have your appendix out and you should just, you know, meditate about it. No, I don't think that's going to help you. But but certainly if you are under a significant amount of stress, just taking a bunch of blood pressure pills isn't going to fix that either. It's, it's not either or, it's and. I really think yes. that's a word we need to use more. And I think in this particular arena, we all ha- have to think about another comorbid type of uh, complication that we have, because when people get sad, they oftentimes medicate or self-medicate. So in the world of mental illness, what oftentimes happens is there is a masking of our sadness, a masking of our stress by um, the selection of taking um, over-the-counter medications or alcohol or different kinds of substances, and then what develops is a co-occurring disorder, and that complicates the problem in many, many dimensions. Absolutely. Drugs, alcohol, even any type of addiction, whether it be a food addiction or whether it be a, you know, addiction to certain types of videos or a certain type of, you know, even, boy, I have a feeling that we're creating a generation of internet addicts. Now, I'm not quite sure if this is going to turn into a disorder, but boy, every time I don't know something, the first thing I want to do is I want to look it up. And and yet that means that very often during the day, I could be I could allow myself and I try really hard not to to get distracted. Oh, let me look at this. Oh, let me click on this link. We're almost creating this sense of of and I hate to say attention deficit because I don't think we're creating a disorder yet. But we really are becoming very impatient. If you don't hear if I click on something and it doesn't show up after five seconds, I'm moving on because that took too long. Five seconds. Are you kidding? But Mm -hmm. I'm moving on. So I think we're just not allowing ourselves the time to really reflect and focus on what's going on in our lives. But you know, we have the luxury of discussing it right now. Yes, and yet there are those people who you mentioned earlier who don't have that luxury. And when we come back after this quick break, we're going to talk more about that. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio at The Body Show. And today I have Dr. Renaud Kennedy with me, and we're going to be talking about the mental mental health of vulnerable populations. Now, as always, this show is your show, too, and you are part of this discussion. And if you have thoughts about it, we'd love to hear them. 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We're going to be talking about those who might be unfortunately incarcerated or some of the homeless that are out there that may have mental health issues and how we need to really focus on addressing those and finding up with finding some community suggestions, Hannah, on how we can all help. So we'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us and we're going to talk some more. I really like Hawaii Public Radio. I listen to both stations because I feel enriched every time I listen. I feel like it's never a waste of time. There's always something useful. Uh, Sometimes I'll find that when the reception is going out, when I'm on the North Shore, 
I'll turn on the side of the road and stop driving and just listen because the program is so useful. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. Learn how Europe changed America during World War I. It was a great cultural awakening. Now, there was a song, How Are You Going to Keep Him Down on the Farm Once He's Been to Paris? Discover what Poland's cultural capital of Krakow still has to teach us. We wanted to preserve the site for uh, future generations to show, hey, this is how bad it can get. And find backdoor fun in the Balkans on the next Travel with Rick Steves. Tuesday at 4 p.m. following Fresh Air. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital and Gourmet Events Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Renault Kennedy, and we're talking today about the mental health of one of our more vulnerable populations and how this affects all of us. Really, it does. You can't walk around any downtown area and not see that there are people out there suffering who might be talking to themselves or might even be committing crimes, unfortunately, because they're just not aware of what else that they can do to survive. Now, if you have any questions or you've seen this happen or... You want to know what sort of community action, or you even have ideas on community action to help. We'd love to hear from you at 941-3689. Toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, Dr. Kennedy, let's talk about what happens when someone gets arrested, because this happens. And if somebody has a mental illness and they're arrested, they're now faced with a whole different set of circumstances And do we have the correct facilities to be able to address some of their mental issues while they are incarcerated? Well, I think you've asked two very important questions. Three or four in that statement. I'm sorry. (laughs) No. Well, let's just talk about it when someone who is mentally ill or there is a question of whether a person is mentally ill when they get arrested. Um, When a situation like this happens, the question is raised either by the um, people who are doing the arresting Um, a prosecutor, a public defender, or sometimes the courts about this person's mental status. And if that person who has just been identified as committing a crime or being accused of committing a crime has got the competency to go forward, to stand trial, and to um, um, be prepared under the Constitution of the United States to have all of those protections so that they can work with an attorney to have an appropriate defense. And if that question of competency comes up, then the judge orders that the, um, that the whole proceeding be suspended. And a group of individuals uh, do what is called competency evaluations on these persons to make those determinations for the court. Now, that's the first step. Oftentimes, too, the court will ask for something else, which um, we've probably seen on television before, but that's criminal responsibility, which essentially means at the time of the event that the person did whatever they did, were they not in their right mind in such a way that they couldn't control their cognitive and volitional capacities? And so, again, the courts turn to experts who um, specialize in the assessment of these particular individuals to make those types of recommendations that can go to court. Now, if these people are found um, by those panelists as individuals who... um, 
are not penally responsible, or in other words, they were not criminally responsible for their behavior, the uh, defense attorney may come forward with what is called an affirmative defense, or sometimes you may have heard of not guilty by reason of insanity. I've heard of that one, yes. Well, when people have that defense, the defense moves from the prosecution to the de- to the side of the other people, which is the defense people, to not to argue whether something happened or not, but it's how the person was thinking and feeling at the time that they committed the offense to make the determination of whether or not they should be found not guilty by reason of mental disease, disorder, or defect. So to put it in real simple terms, because I like simple terms, Mm -hmm. and a lot of legal terms sound complicated, but usually are pretty simple. If you commit a crime, are, are you in your right state of mind when you do so? And if you are, then you may be criminally responsible. And if it's deemed that you're not, you have a schizophrenic break or you have some sort of mental break, then you may not have been responsible for your actions. And therefore, something else is supposed to take place. What is the something else? Well, when we find that individuals who are um, not uh, criminally responsible for their behaviors are are identified, then what we believe under the Constitution of the United States is that those people deserve treatment. So instead of going to um, a, a jail and a prison system and spending time in a correctional f- facility, it is our belief that um, those individuals deserve the amelioration of their mental disease disorder and defect And they also need a treatment plan around them so that they can return to the community in such a way that there's not a risk to anyone in the family or in the community so that the crime that was um, originally occurred doesn't happen again. And that can be something as simple as um, being in a public park that's closed and being told that you can't sleep there anymore. Or it could be something as severe as murder. So... In somebody who has committed a crime and found not guilty by reason of insanity, we often hear the term they are, quote, committed. Committed to where? They are committed to the care and custody of the director of health. So essentially what that means is that they became a ward of the state, and the ward of the state here under the governor, the uh, director of health, has a division within that called the Adult Mental Health Division. And those folks look after the uh, um, the Hawaii State Hospital and then all of the community-based services that array out of the Hawaii State Hospital thereafter so that people who have these mental illnesses can be housed where they can be monitored, where they can have um, people making sure that they get to their doctors, that their medication is taken care of, that they actually have the funds to live and they don't return to the streets. So my naivete says if you committed a crime and you're found not guilty, reason of insanity, you are committed, you are sent to the state hospital, you are there for a long period of time. Is what you're saying that sometimes that is not the case? Sometimes you are evaluated in a state hospital, maybe you are treated for your condition, and then you are released in the community under supervision similar to like like a parole kind of situation? Yes. um, People who have been found not guilty by reason of mental illness are actually monitored by two different agencies in the state. And as I just mentioned, the Department of Health has a whole group that monitor these individuals, but the probation department also monitors individuals who have been found not guilty by reason of mental illness 
who are on what we call conditional release. Okay, so conditional release. So they could be out in the community. And the idea is to make sure that if they had a mental illness that brought them there, that they don't wind up skipping their doctor's appointment, skipping their medicine, going back to that break, whatever it was determined that it was, and then committing another crime. That's correct. And it also means that if that person is starting to relapse... Someone notices. Someone notices, and we have the mechanism before another crime occurs to bring them back and to help uh, with the recalibration of of medication or changing them from uh, losing their housing to being homeless so that we don't have a situation where another person gets harmed and this person who is in harm's way already doesn't reoccur in another offense. And that's where it becomes everyone's issue. It does. Because it should be everyone's issue because we are so interested in the mental health of everyone in our community. But even if you choose to isolate yourself and say, I'm not interested in that, you could be the victim of the crime. Absolutely. And so the other reason to say it's everyone's responsibility and interest is because no one wants to be the victim of a crime from someone who is deemed not criminally responsible for their activities because they have a mental illness. And that doesn't change the fact that the victim is harmed. That's correct. So if you want to make sure that you are not and no one you love is the victim of an unfortunate crime, we need to make sure that everybody takes the mental health of all of us that seriously. Mm -hmm. That's the connection. I think that that's that's such an important message because what happens when individuals become what we call severe and persistent mentally ill, which is a particular category of mental illness that's not a one-time episode, we call that SPMI or severe and persistent mentally ill, those individuals wear out their loved ones. What happens is they um, oftentimes are resistant to treatment. They don't want to do what they want to do, and they finally frustrate families to such an extent that families are exasperated. They don't know what more to do. There's sometimes violence in the household. And so those individuals end up in our community without the reasonable supports unless they're connected up to the Department of Health in some sort of public way so that they can get the services that are needed. And the key is do so before the crime. That would be the key. All right. We've got a couple of callers on the line. We have Jenna from Wiley. Jenna, welcome to The Body Show. Hi, aloha. Aloha. What can we do for you? I just wanted to comment on um, a nonprofit that I've been volunteering with and involved with for the past year and a half called Surfrider Spirit Sessions. Okay. I'm Um, sorry. Can you say it again? Surfrider Spirit Sessions. Surfrider Spirit nonprofit focused Spirit on uh, matching at-risk youth and adjudicated youth with adult surf mentors. Um, we teach the kids um, one-on-one how to surf and how to get stoked on surfing um, and hopefully to change their lives around and make better choices in life. Fantastic. So, this, so this what got you... The, the need for... Um, real mentors in the community getting matched up with teenagers who really just need an adult to look up to. In most cases, um, families and other counselors aren't as um, posed to um, talk with them one-on-one about decisions they make in life and um, what better way to do it on Waikiki Beach right at Canoes. 
It sounds great. Now, Jana, what got you excited about doing it? Because are you a surfer? Is this part of how you decided you wanted to be part of it? I've been surfing all of my life, and my dad taught me how to surf. And through this program, I'm able to share my knowledge of the ocean and surfing with other kids who may have not even touched the water or even surfed. And most of them are from here, Hawaiian, um, from all different parts of Oahu. And it's just awesome to um, get them soaked in the water and um, see that there are outlets like surfing um, that can make them really happy. And um, we create an ohana, so we build off each other, create networks, teach them job readiness skills, um, all different kinds of things. And in most cases, you see the transformation of these kids in week four, week three. Um, And it's really, really exciting. It sounds fantastic. Now, for those who might be surfing challenged, and I can't say I've ever actually stood up on a board, if if they wanted to know more about this organization, how could they? There is a website. It's surferspirit.org, S-U-R-F-E-R-S-P-I-R-I-T.org. Fantastic. So if somebody knew of an individual that might benefit from having a mentor, they could find out more information on that site. Or if they themselves yep. said, you know what, I really, I'm having troubles in school. I want to do something else. I want to find a community and Ohana that I can really be with that might not be the stress of what's going on at home, but might be some other adult mentors that can help me. That's where they can go. Yeah, exactly. And it's a free program to the community as long as you're a teenager and um, you are referred to um, into the program. It is free. Um, counselors, the Hawaii State Court um, refer kids into the program, Girls Court, the Drug Court. Um, all of those are um, places that um, we get kids from. Wonderful. So talk about a community action. You give your time, what your dad taught you to help other people to take on those same skills and use that physical activity as sort of an emotional support system to help other folks. I just think it's fantastic. Thanks so much for, excuse me, thanks so much, Jenna, for sharing that with us. I appreciate you sharing your time and effort for the last year with the Surf Riders Spirit Sessions and really just helping bring that awareness of how we all need a community here to the islands. And you know, that's a nice way to be proactive. And the curious thing is that, you know, Dr. Kennedy, Jenna mentioned that the courts are sending folks to them. Well, I think that that is a beautiful example of what Jenna brought up, because not every person needs medication. And particularly children and teenagers who are losing their way sometimes and where they end up in trouble is a sad set of emotions, and those emotions sometimes end up in substance abuse. And as you well know, we end up with very desperate situations and sometimes school shootings. So if people can feel only in Hawaii that they can be brought into an ohana where there's water and beauty and love, then that in itself is its own medicine. There's so much to be said for being outside in nature. There have been so many studies that recently have looked at lowered blood pressure, lowered pulse rate, better breathing, just being literally outside in nature. And taking in your vitamin D. Well, you are, absolutely. And in addition, it's just there's a calming influence, particularly for a lot of folks of just being 
towards and near the ocean. I think there's something about that, the rolling waves and the tides and just being out there in the salt water that is incredibly healing. So one thing that folks can do is really look at some of the grassroots organizations That's that great. might help support some of the at-risk at youth and troubled youth because they are at a greater risk of having problems in the future. And if you're in a situation where you really feel like it's hopeless and you're not going to be able to make it out of that situation, what more could you do other than act out? You don't, you don't have any other mechanism. No one's taught you other skills. And so this is a great way to incorporate ways that we can all help. Anybody can volunteer for any of these organizations that really want to help partner Big Brothers Big Sisters, anybody who can partner with people who might be having troubles. Do you think something similar might work? Could we ever envision having something like that for people who have mental illness? Well, there's a national organization called NAMI, N-A-M-I, that um, is an organization that reaches out to uh, individuals who do have mental illness, but also to the family members that um, suffer as well with their loved ones. And so those organizations do exist, but not on the scale that I think... Not we, like a mentoring thing, one-to-one. Yes, yeah. not, I think that would be very difficult unless you... And NAMI does fantastic work. I mean, they. I'm I'm familiar with them. They do an absolutely excellent job. I'm wondering... Do most people, and I guess as I ask the question, I sort of know the answer. Do most people who are mentally ill know that they are? When you see folks who are on the street who are talking to themselves and who are yelling obscenities or something, do they have any sort of insight to know there's something wrong? Or do they just not realize that their behavior is so out of the ordinary? And how do we reach those folks? Well, I think you ask a very important question, and it's it really depends on the course of their illness and the time frame of it. And sometimes when people are in the very beginning of their illnesses, they do not recognize that they have a mental illness. And um, denial is more than a river in Egypt. Oh, yes, it and is. And so as a result of it, people account it to, um, you know, a bad relationship or they account it to, oh, my boss didn't like me. But when it starts to continue time and time again. Like when five bosses say the same thing. <laughs> that's you've got right. yourself a problem. And you finally lost your job one too many times. Then you have to kind of look at some of these issues. What a lot of the work is done in mental health areas is for people to recognize that they do have a condition, but that condition is not impossible. And that condition, just like we were talking earlier about epilepsy, doesn't mean that it's going to be the end of their lives as long as they recognize what the condition is. And when they start to slip again, which people do when we have severe and persistent mental illness, then who can I turn to and what kind of resources are available when I start to kindle these not-such-good feelings that are having me slip slide away again, as opposed to turning to substances and to alcohol? And also, in some cases, to doing something violent to themselves or to someone else. That's correct. Because, again, we get back to why should we all be invested in this? Because, really, there is something to be said for trying to help the folks who you see on the street who might need some help, that it's not just, quote, someone else will take care of them because we are the someone else. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Renaud Kennedy, and we're talking today about the mental health of some of our more vulnerable populations here in the islands. And if you have some thoughts 
or if you've ever had an experience where you've seen someone who you've been able to help, we'd love to hear your story. We just heard from a wonderful caller, Jana, who said she helps using surfing as a way to reach out to those who need just a different sense of community. And if if you're part of one of those organizations, let's hear from you too. You can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Bosses who are jerks. You've had them. I've had them. If you look at these traits, such as being Machiavellian, narcissistic, you will find that most of these traits tend to have short-term advantages. I'm Kai Rizdahl, jerks and why they get promoted next time on Marketplace from APM. This evening at 6, following The Body Show. Hi, this is Ray Cruz inviting you to join me on Wednesday nights from 8 to 10 for Latin Beat. I'll be playing classic Afro-Cuban Latin jazz, Latin big band classics, and share the latest releases in Latin jazz. That's Latin Beat every Wednesday night from 8 to 10 here on HBR2, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. See you then. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Dr. Renaud Kennedy. And today we're talking about mental health and what does this mean for our community at large and why it's important for each one of us to care about those who have mental illness that may not even realize it. Because we may all wind up in this huge community being affected by the mental health of every individual. Now, before the break, we were hearing about a wonderful organization, the Surfrider Spirit Sessions, which deals with trying to partner at-risk youth with people in the community learning surfing and how healing it can be to be in nature. But not everybody has an opportunity to hook up with such a wonderful organization. And we also talked to Dr. Kennedy about what happens when somebody is considered not guilty because of reasons of insanity, and they may receive some services and receive some treatment and hopefully get whatever that mental condition is under better control so that they don't have another outburst of violence or criminal activity or anything else afterwards. But what about those folks who are considered to be criminally responsible but may still have a mental illness? What happens to them? Well, those are individuals that prior to their trial, they stay in houses of correction. And then um, if they have a mental illness at the time that they are awaiting trial, they will receive some treatment in our prison mental health system. And the extent of the treatment there most usually is the identification of the illness and some sort of medication. And um, there are some milieus or some units that do focus on the mentally ill, on the outer islands, those individuals are sent here to our main prison facility pretrial, which is the OCCC facility. And then once a person has been found guilty of a crime but still who is mentally ill, again, the uh, person spends time incarcerated. And at the same time that they are incarcerated, they sometimes uh, receive you know, some services, mostly medication, which is the main thing that is offered to those individuals so that they can cope with the incarcerated setting as well as with their mental illness. Those individuals are sometimes very difficult to deal with in a milieu, 
And so, again, they oftentimes get segregated into special placements um, so that they can either be housed in a therapeutic setting or for those people who don't get identified, they end up in strict security. And then what happens when they leave? If you're, if you're being able to be treated while you're in a facility, you know, we did actually have an anonymous caller earlier who said, so who pays for all this treatment? And when, when you're out in the community, who pays for mental health services? And luckily, most of our major insurers do provide some mental health coverage. Unfortunately, I don't think from the provider aspect, they get any increase in reimbursement, particularly in the last 25 years or so. They really have not received adequate reimbursement to consider the rate of inflation. So I do think we underpay our mental health professionals, unfortunately, on a regular basis. But when we're dealing with people who were formerly incarcerated, let's say somebody's in jail, they have a mental illness, they get treated somewhat so, then they, they satisfy their jail term, and now they're released. Now, in a lot of places, you can't get a job if you've already been incarcerated. They do a background check and they say, we're not going to give you a job, which may mean that you don't have medical coverage or medical insurance, which may mean that you don't have enough money to get access to the services that you need, and maybe you do or don't qualify for some of the Medicaid services available. What happens to them? Well, when individuals are, are released from um, settings that are in, and they are incarcerated, they either are released on conditions of probation or they do their full term and then they're released outright. To society. Yeah. To society. They could be your neighbors. They could be your neighbors. That's why you should really care about everyone's mental health. So any individual who is on probation, um, if they don't show up at their probation officer's meetings that they have scheduled, and there have been some slip sliding away through um, either a falling off of their medications or a, an individual who's just using too many substances once again, the probation officer has a right to request from the judge that their probation be revoked and they go back into the system. But for those people that term out, for example, those people that do a, a large crime and that they have not been given a parole, but they max out, in other words. Right. They're given 10 years. It's 10 years later. Okay. That's right. They are not placed on, on probation or parole, and they um, go out into the streets. So unfortunately, at one particular time, the adult mental health position had positions available that were designated to help those people who were released from the prison to help them with housing, to help them find a place where they could get hooked up into mental health services. But because of the crunch in those services, it, those particular positions no longer exist. So we started the show talking about what we're doing right. And Kind of the only thing we decided is that we're doing right is awareness. Although, yes, Jenna, you are doing something right. You're really helping to focus on identifying at-risk individuals, whether they be teenagers in this case or in any situation, someone's at risk. So we may have a greater awareness of mental health as important to physical health. We may be reaching out to some of the at-risk youth. We hear about these episodes at the state hospital where 
state hospital workers are being injured or being yes. attacked because, you know, their claim, and, and I, I honestly, I think it's probably true, is that they're understaffed and there aren't enough people to handle what's going on. And maybe somebody calls out sick and then they have not enough staff to handle the number of patients that are there. And there is quite a bit of overcrowding. It wasn't designed to house as many people as it does. What else can we do right? What could we do differently to help this entire situation get better? Well, I think the most important thing that um, I can bring to the table today is for folks to be aware that there are bills that are going to be um, presented in the in the House and the Senate in this coming January in the legislature to try to work with mental health parity. And what that essentially is is to increase the funding that's necessary so that staffing positions for um, critical areas of mental health are number one, covered, and number two, that those salaries can be such that we can actually recruit. We can get somebody. And to bring people in. And I will just give you one example of one that kind of helps people think about it. We were talking earlier about those individuals that do the evaluations of individuals who um, may or may not be mentally ill. Right, the competency. That is correct. And the Department of Mental Health has a division of individuals, and they are supposed to be staffed with a team of eight. Right now, they have a team of three. And so if you can think about why things get overcrowded and why we have contempt in court types of cases, is that those positions that are available are, number one, not competitive when we're thinking about a market which is national. So to give you an example, just recently, I got an advertisement from New Jersey to be a part-time forensic psychologist 20 hours a week, and that salary was exactly the same salary for 20 hours a week as it is for a full-time person taking a position here in the state of Hawaii for 40 hours a week. Wow. So we do not in Hawaii offer the correct amount of uh, compensation to actively recruit people from the mainland. We are not training individuals here in the state of Hawaii through our um, different schooling systems to put students who then become young professionals back into this community. And we are not paying competitive salaries um, based on the needs of what's there. To give you another example, just recently, After we closed our uh, community consent decree, the Department of Justice said we needed forensic coordinators to be in the community to help those people on conditional release. And they needed a specialized type of skill to be able to do that. Well, under our state staffing structures, those people with those special skills were hired as exempt employees. But because of the system as it is and the reorganization of the department, they have decided to downgrade those jobs. So instead of offering the salaries that once existed, they have cut those salaries by twenty-five dollars to $30,000 per and that's person. that's a huge And now those amount. positions have now disappeared. The positions that now remain have been recalibrated under the social services system, but as they're being recalibrated, there are a number of positions that are vacant, and no one is taking these positions. 
frankly, the salaries are just too low for this type of specialized care. So forensic services, forensic mental health evaluators, forensic coordinators, and those people that are designated under the court system to help out so that they can answer the issues of the court, do it in a timely manner, are essential to our services. We need to support those individuals to make sure that they get salaried so that they can then help with the mental health parity in these other areas. And, you know, we often hear about the reason why CEOs get paid so much in various businesses is because they have to be, quote, competitive with the market at large. We hear about that with athletic people who who are coaches and why they're making so much money or university presidents. And I remember just within the last year or so, the University of Hawaii said the reason we pay our president so much is because we have to be competitive with the community. So, We know that this is important because that's how you recruit great talent. And yet for an area in mental health that requires. Now, let's just briefly explain a forensic psychiatrist or a forensic psychologist is not just somebody who went to school, medical school, did some training in psychiatry. And now, hey, guess what? I'm certified to do this or went through psychology training, which is, you know, up to a decade and said, I can do this. There's actually a lot more involved in that. It takes years of schooling and fellowship, etc. It does. And it also, uh, in addition to having the schooling, you also need direct mentorship so you can learn how to do these cases. You can't learn out of a book how to do criminal responsibility evaluations. You must be mentored and you need to have ongoing training to do it. And in addition to this, you have to know the state statutes and you have to be aware of what is changing in terms of the different laws. So for an example, many of the type of cases that we have when we are doing criminal responsibility evaluations uh, revolves around the question of does this person have an insanity because of methamphetamine use and abuse or is it truly because of an underlying disorder such as a bipolar condition or schizophrenia? These symptoms mask each other so much you have to be able to have acuity and skill and training to make sure that you're not making errors in the wrong way either way. And so that requires, you know, skill, ability, and oversight and learning what is necessary to make these determinations. And you can't pay someone like that minimum wage. And you can't pay someone like that who's gone through decades of training and mentorship and has such a critical responsibility. You can't pay them so little that no one applies for the job. And unfortunately, or fortunately for the state of Hawaii, we've had a fantastic cadre of individuals who have done this, and they've dedicated their careers to it. We just recently, uh, just a year ago, had a gentleman who left the service who had been there for almost 30 years. Um, The other three people that remain in this particular condition have been there for 20 years, but these are all individuals in their 60s. They're going to want to retire sooner or later. They are going to retire. And so what we have to do is we have to not only recognize their efforts and pay parity for their salaries when you're um, recruiting in other places far away, you've got to give them the same salary that you're recruiting for. But at the same hand, you need to be training and making sure that we have the opportunity for these younger individuals that are coming in to learn this skill set from these sage individuals. And we've got to do it fast. Yes, because we do. they're going to be retiring soon. And the 
what what would happen if we didn't have anyone fill those positions? Let's just bring it home to a reality. If nobody filled those jobs, what would the system, what would the criminal system be like? Well, it's happening right now. And what is happening? Okay, well, I was thinking, <laughs> worst case scenario, and your right? answer is, it's happening right now. Okay. Well, if you think of these individuals going to all islands, what happens is you can only be one person doing so much in any given month. These cases are backing up further and further and further. And the judges, um, at least on the Big Island twice now, have brought the adult mental health into a contempt of court to try to understand how is it that these courts are having delay after delay after delay in these types of cases. And the answer that, you know, we all have to understand is you've got to get people hired. And in order to hire people, you have to recruit at a salary, which is compensate to other people on other um, areas of the country. And that's what's currently brewing in the legislature. Yes, it is. For people who support that, what should they do? Um, uh, Senator Josh Green is one of the individuals who is bringing this um, type of information forward in a a Senate bill that he brought forward last year that did not get passed in the House, but it did get passed fully in the Senate. He's going to be bringing this again this year. And Senator um, Susan Chun, Oakland is also, Oakland Chun is also a person that has a mental health uh, committee that she houses and brings together individuals from all parts of the community, including forensic examiners, who come and talk about these issues so that issues can be addressed to the people that have the money. And the people that have the money are the legislators who make determinations about where those dollars go. So if you want to get active and involved, you either look up these folks or you also go to hawaii.gov and find the legislative session page, find out what's going on, find out what bills are there, and let your local representatives know how strongly you feel about it. It's very important. And for individuals who have family members who are caught in this system, it's important to understand that when you're awaiting an evaluation, you are a person who ends up setting in an incarcerated uh, setting more often than not. So what it does is... You're in jail while you're waiting. It magnifies the jail system. It magnifies the awaiting. If you're waiting to get out of Hawaii State Hospital, the system is bulging. And you're really depending on these evaluations to get done. But you cannot ask a group of three to do the job of a group of eight. If eight is even sufficient. That's correct. It might be that we need 10 or 12. That is correct. All right. This is great stuff for a Monday. (laughs) So the good news is we are bringing forth bills in the legislature, and these may pass and therefore help to ameliorate some of the problems that are going on and maybe be more proactive in addressing what's going on with the mental health needs of our prison population. Mm-hmm. That is correct. Okay. That is correct. And each of us has a role, and that role may be that you know somebody or you happen to be friends with someone whose family member is in this situation. But if you want to take action, there are ways to go about it, and you can find information about how to do that on the Hawaii.gov page or in various locations as well. All right. Well, thank you for helping us, Dr. Renault Kennedy, and just explaining all of this to us. I appreciate your coming on today. We'll have to do it again. I really appreciate having the opportunity to come today and to talk to folks and to also have people be aware that it does take a village and it does take tax dollars for us to allow this 
population to be served, both criminally as well as, you know, in a civil commitment type of a way. All right. It's our village, our engineer in our village here at HPR's David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. Mm-hmm.